so exciting to be back in the house of the Lord one more week as we again get to fellowship in the word of God. I'm particularly excited about today as we have worked our way and have been working our way through the book of Ephesians. I've been waiting to get to this particular scripture, this particular passage for quite some time. I think we all are somewhat familiar, some of us who won't deny our past worldliness. We are all somewhat familiar with our green song that says, Love and Happiness. And it seems of the similar narrative that many of us think about when we think of marriage. Love and happiness. But when we look at scripture, we see that more than it pairs love and happiness, I think quite often we see love and submission. I think submission is far greater of a word than the word happiness. Last week, if you recall, we talked about submission being a requirement for every Christian brother and sister. It should be emblematic of the entire Christian life toward other Christians in the faith. I told you that submission doesn't begin when you make a marriage covenant with one another, but it begins when we make a covenant with God at our conversion. Unfortunately, we believe that submission doesn't happen until we get married. And oftentimes when we get married, it's too late to learn how to submit to one another. Today, however, we will define what submission is. We will qualify it. And then inevitably we will see how imperative it is for Christian husbands and wives to submit themselves to one another. Now, I do realize for many of us that the word submit is just difficult to conceptualize. I believe in my heart of hearts that when many of us hear the word submit, we think of what happens when a wrestler has another wrestler in a submission hold. It gets to the point where that other wrestler just cannot bear the pain anymore. And so he unwillingly submits to the wrestler that has the hold of him. While that may accurately define what submission is in wrestling, it actually may even define what submission is in the world. But submission when it comes to the church is a far different word. By and large, yes, submission is the reluctant yielding to a superior force, but that isn't what it is for Christians. Remember, Christian submission is when we willfully align our lives under the word of God And inevitably, our government and our Christian brothers and sisters. I say this now because we are always called as Christians to submit. It doesn't begin in marriage. In fact, by the time we get married, submission should be second nature for us. One day there was a man who was taking out his trash. And while he was doing it, the woman next door was rolling out her trash as well. She looked at him and she said, see, I wish my husband was was like you. He said, what do you mean? She said, well, I'm taking this trash out. I have to do this because he's in the house sleeping. Later on that same week, that same man was out mowing the grass. And so was the neighboring wife. She stopped him again and said, I see, I wish my husband would cut the grass like you do. Your wife is pretty lucky. I have to do this because he won't do it. 
The next week, this man was taking in groceries and he saw the husband out cutting the grass. And the husband confronted him and said, hey, buddy, I got a bone to pick with you. He said, what's going on? He said, I had a good thing going and you really ruined it. My wife has always loved landscaping and she has always preferred taking out of the trash. Then she saw you doing and everything changed. I get it. All right. You're just a better husband than I am. The other man said, hey, I was going to tell you how much I admire you. I'm not even married yet. But when I get married, I hope I find a wife just like yours. Isn't it funny how our perception of what's going on in somebody else's household changes the view that we have of what's going on in our own household? We must get beyond thinking that submissiveness is just bowing down to every whim of our spouses so that we can live peacefully. What we learn quickly is that we will, it will make us less submissive to our spouses, but it will cause us to resent them. So as we look at scripture today, let us do so with a nuanced view. But really, I would argue that this has been the view scripture has had all along. Look at Ephesians 5.22. Wives, submit to your own husbands. As to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives submit in everything to to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle, or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Just as Christ does the church because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Remember, Paul set the standard for submission in verse 21. He said that all Christians are, in fact, submissive. It doesn't begin when we get married, but it should be emblematic of the Christian life, regardless of if we have a spouse or not. We should submit, therefore, to one another. We should submit to the government. We should submit to those who are over us on our jobs. And when we get married, because we have submitted in all those other areas, submission is second nature to us. He then takes a step further and he offers what that should look like in the Christian marriage. Now, some people may question why, beyond Paul's authority as an apostle, that he was able to comment on marriage. Because many of you may notice that scripture never mentions Paul having a wife. But allow me to let you see it this way. 
What many people fail to realize is that Paul had to be married at some point in his life. How do we know that? Paul was a Pharisee. Not only was Paul a Pharisee, but Paul was also a rabbi. Because Paul was a Pharisee, because Paul was a rabbi, there was a requirement. You must be married. So when we see in 1 Corinthians 7, when Paul is writing, he writes to the widows and the unmarried. The unmarried is very likely not a reference to those who had never been married. But when he says to the widows and unmarried, the unmarried is a reference to those who were widow worse. See, in Greek culture and Greek society, they just didn't have a term for a man that lost his wife. And so what they would call that man is unmarried. And so when we see later that Paul says, remain single as I am, largely that points that Paul was probably a widower. At some point, Paul was married, but his wife probably died. Now, when he begins addressing the wives in this letter to the Ephesian church, he is encouraging them to submit to their husbands. Many of the women in this society had converted from the Artemis religion where the women were in charge of everything. Not only were they in charge of everything, but they worshiped this goddess named Artemis. And the women became the leaders and the chief and high priestesses in that society. Now, not only that, but the culture around them was very similar to what we see today. Women saw marriage as oppressive. And women needed, they felt like they needed to exert their own freedom and their own rights as women. So for many who say that this doesn't apply to us today because we live in a different context, they don't understand that it was just as, if not more, counter to the culture for Paul to write this in his time. So let's dig in to our first point today. It's a a two-edged sword, all right? Wives submit. Husbands be worthy of submission. That's for everybody. Many times, unfortunately, I've heard many misogynistic messages preached about how the wife should submit to her husband. But all the while, no one ever talks about the husband being worthy of that submission. In order for the wife to appropriately and adequately submit, he must also be submitting to God. Paul tells wives to submit to your own husbands. Again, we see that we see submission as what the wife lovingly and willfully does because of her love for her husband. But she also does it because she loves the Lord. When he says, as to the Lord, he is not saying serve your husbands or submit to your husbands like you do to the Lord. But he's saying consider your submission to your husband a service unto God. It pleases God when we are obedient to the whole totality of his word. There are no qualifications here. It doesn't matter if the wife makes more money, if she has more degrees, if she has more wisdom in a matter. She is to submit to her own husband. Now, that is already probably making some of the wives in this room uncomfortable. Because you think I'm saying that if your husband is weak in a specific area that you you should blindly submit to him in that way. But that's not what I'm saying. Remember, you are called to complement and balance one another out. 
but not lord over one another. You are certainly not supposed to beat the spouse up with the fact that they are not as strong in an area as you are. See, even though Paul still qualifies what submission looks like for wives, the husband is still the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. This is God's divine order. Marriage is literally the mirror image of what Christ has done for the church. And that is why we are always referenced to in scripture as the bride of the church of Christ. Now, in the marriage, this doesn't mean that the husband is superior to the wife. But God has given him the leadership role in the household. Now, the onus, too, is on the husband. Because if the wife is submitting as the church should submit, then the husband should have the same self-sacrifice and love that makes submission easy for his wife. That's the charge to husband. If she's called to submit, you should self-sacrifice so much that her submission is second nature. That she lovingly and willfully submits. That is why, that is why Paul admonishes the husband to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. What does that mean, people? That means submission is a two-way street. The wife has self-sacrifice and submission because the husband has self-sacrifice and love. You cannot divorce these two from one another. Christ defined altruism for us because he gave himself up for us. He submitted, therefore, to the will of the father. The husband's submission to God should entice his wife to submit to him. What do I mean? Your submission to God should be so attractive that it causes your wife to follow your leadership. Husbands, you have been giving, given a helper. So if you are not great at managing money, taking care of tasks, I am submitting to God who will then help me manage my affairs. But as husbands, we have been given helpers. And they are our wives. Why they are helpers? Because we are not perfect in everything we do. And so what she should do is build up the areas in which I lack. And so even as the husband is submitting to God, the wife submits to him, but he also submits to his wife as well. Now, wives, if you are married to a Christian husband who is trying, and you know because you live with him, if he is trying to be led by God, do your job, do what you're supposed to do, and help him. Help him. If you feel like he may be misguided, help him. Do not talk about him, talk to him. And help your husband. 
I want you to see the two distinct commands that the husband and wife get. For the wife, she is admonished to submit. Why? Because we read it in Genesis. Because of the fall, because of the curse, the Bible tells us that the desire of the wife is to lord over her husband. That is her desire, which is a result of the fall. For husbands, we are admonished to love our wives. He gives us two different commands, and this is not by mistake. And what's even more strange is that when Paul uses the word love in the Greek, he doesn't use the word eros. Now, eros means to be in love. That is affectionate love. He didn't use that word. He uses a different word. He uses agapeo. Now, this isn't agape love, but it's really a step below agape love. See, what this love means is it is the kind of love that is steadfast, unwavering, unmovable, unshaken by what may happen or the circumstances of your marriage. He said he didn't say be in love with your wives. He commanded us to love them. So when the wife doesn't do the thing I want her to do the way I would have her to do it, he didn't say in that moment, remember to be in love with your wife. He said to love them. What's the comparison? As Christ has loved the church. Christ has loved the church regardless of our sins and our missteps and our mistakes. His love has remained unshaken and unmovable. We are, as husbands, called to love our wives no less than Christ has loved the church. We, as husbands, have an obligation to give up what makes us us, what makes us independent of our wives, so that when we come together, we are no longer two, but we are one. So let me just tell you this, husbands, God doesn't care what you did, how you did it, who you did it with before your wife was your wife. When you married her, you gave all of that up. Amen. All right. So listen to this. This is a one liner. I put this in here. You cannot be more willing to give up money for a wedding if you will not give up your life for the marriage. Put that in your pipe and smoke. Point number two. Husbands, sanctify your wives. Sanctify your wives. Husbands are not just to be the physical lead and head of the house, but they are expected to be the spiritual pastors of their home. Paul uses some strong imagery here, and he is not making a mistake. He he says, as you would normally cleanse yourself outwardly, cleanse and sanctify your wives by washing them in the word. That means, husbands, we should be more devoted to the understanding of the word. Whether we pastor a church or not, we pastor our houses. We are called to be the spiritual leaders in our homes. 
And if I say something in this church that goes against scripture, you as husbands lead your wives to the truth. Do not let them blindly take what other men are telling them if it doesn't align itself with the word. Pastor your house, husbands. So that when I get up here, you know the word. And if she asks you a question about the word, you can quote it because you know it. This means that there are few expectations that we can see. One, as a Christian, as a Christian husband, know the word, study the word, live the word, and speak the word. That's your job as a husband. I'll give that to you again. Know the word, study the word, live the word, and you speak the word. You cannot be a lame duck spiritually, and you cannot be timid as a husband. You may not be the pastor of the church, but you are the head of that household. Live like it. Act like it. Be it. Your job is to lead your wife into a closer relationship with God. You cannot be sanctifying yourself while she dies spiritually. Why? Because there is no longer two. There is now one. And so as you grow spiritually, you are to bring your wife along with you. Paul says in the next verses, we are one. You cannot have your relationship with God and then she has hers. It is your relationship with God as a whole. Too many times I've heard Christian marriages and Christian husbands and Christian wives say, well, we're going to separate and I'm going to work on me and she's going to work on her. That doesn't work. Because God doesn't see you as individuals anymore. He sees you as one. So you can't go work on you while she's working on her. In order for you to work on you, God must be also working on her. With you involved. See, far before we ever physically or naturally or legally divorce one another, we divorce each other spiritually. Divorce only confirms what was already going on in our households. And if we have divorced one another spiritually, that doesn't mean one failed and we both failed. You say, well, I don't believe that. Well, scripture says, let the sanctified wife sanctify the unsaved husband. And let the sanctified husband sanctify the unsaved spouse, the unsaved wife. And it does say, if they don't want anything to do with it, Paul said this in 1 Corinthians, if the unsaved spouse completely forsakes you, you are free from that covenant. But he says it in a way that you are not to be excited about it. Because I hate to break the news to you. If you were spiritually and emotionally divorced from your spouse before they did what they did, you are not free from that marriage. Because you got a get out of jail free card. See, God knows the hearts of all of us. And if you feel yourself divorcing from your spouse, 
connect with them by cleansing her and washing her by sanctifying her in the word of God. That is the challenge we have as husbands. There is no husband that should be content with his wife being stagnant spiritually. Not one husband. We are called to stimulate the growth of our wives. Foolish is the husband who is more willing to stimulate his wife sexually and not spiritually. You are called to stimulate her, to entice her to growth in God. The greatest evidence of our Christian servitude is if you can lead your home as the spiritual God. They love them as their own bodies. When you look at your wife, you must see yourself. You must not see what aggravates you. You must not see what gets on your nerves. You must see yourself. And by seeing yourself, you will also see there are things that I do as well that get on her nerves. I am not above loving my wife because that is the command for God, from God. Most importantly, though, and I want you to understand this. If you are in a Christian marriage, she is a member. Your husband, your wife, they are members of the body of Christ. That's how you see them. You don't forsake them, one, because they are your spouse, but two, because we are called to fellowship and entice one another who are in the body of Christ to grow. That's why the Bible tells us there is safety in godly counsel. More than she is your wife, she is one of Christ's devoted your marriage is representative of what should be happening in Christ's church. He then says, quoted from Genesis, that this is why we leave our mother and father and we cleave to our wives. You are committing yourself to the woman God has given you, not the woman God gave your father. Which means you can't shape her, you can't make her, you cannot mold her into what your mother did. This is your wife. Let your father have his wife. Finally, we see that Paul says that this union, it is a mystery. Paul doesn't mean mystery in terms of he doesn't understand how any of this works, but he's, he's using the word mystery as a reference to something that was foreshadowed in the Old Testament that was perfected by the saving death and sacrificial death of Jesus Christ on the cross. Christ's marriage to the church and the elect perfectly personifies what marriage in the Christian household should look like. This is impossible without the work of the Holy Spirit. He then closes with this salutation and reminder that husbands love their own wives as themselves and let the wife respond with respect for her husband. 
This is the beautiful wedlock of a Christian marriage. You have a husband who is the pastor of his house. He is able to pastor his house, not because of his own gift and his own intellect and his own wisdom, but because he is submitting himself to God. His submission to God causes his wife then to submit to him because she loves him and he loves her and together they love God. And as they submit to one another and love one another, they grow in grace with one another. But their marriages are the examples. They are what we should hold on the pedestal of Christ's marriage to the church. That's why when people ask you about marriage, stop speaking in a negative connotation. Yes, marriages go through things, but the gift of God is wonderful grace. I cannot receive grace from God if I'm not extending grace to my spouse. So when people ask you about your marriage, think about your relationship with Jesus Christ. I've made some mistakes. I've had some pitfalls. I have sinned. I have dishonored. But he has remained faithful. That is the same situation for our marriages. We have all made mistakes. We have all gone astray. We have all sinned against one another. But because Christ is the center of our wedlock, he has remained faithful even when we have not. And that should propel us to love one another regardless of what we've done to one another. We forgive because he has forgiven us. That's why when the Bible says forgive and you shall be forgiven. And then the very next text it says give and it shall be given to you. We always think that's talking about money, but it's talking about grace and mercy. If you give grace, if you give mercy, you will receive grace and you will receive mercy from God. Press down, shaking together, running over. Shall men give into your bosom? That ain't talking about money. It's talking about grace. See, grace is much more of a commodity than money any day. Because when money runs out, I'm still going to need some grace. When love runs out, I'm still going to need some grace. When the job runs out, we all need grace from God. So, as I get ready to sit down, I will stand here today to say and admonish you and remind you that the most beautiful representation we have as the church is not what we do on Sundays. It's not how we treat our kids, but it is what is going on in our marriages. And so if you are trying to witness and draw people to Christ and you are married, let the glory of God shine in and throughout your marriage. Because it would be very difficult for people to believe what you say when what you say is different than what they see.
testify to people because of your blessed wedlock. Because it honors God when you can live together, love one another, and submit to one another. To those of you who are in this room who are thinking about marriage, who may have been married, who are unmarried, don't settle for anything that doesn't glorify God. I don't care how much it makes sense. I don't care how much it makes economical sense. I don't care how rational it is. I'm not asking you to do the right thing. I'm asking you to do the God thing. If you come together with someone and it does not glorify God, regardless of how special they may be, they are not the person for you. Because if God created marriage to reflect what's going on in his church, he is not going to call you to someone that dishonors him. Let's pray.